loving one another even when it hurts. Loving one another even when it hurts. I've just celebrated my 15th Christmas in Malaysia. I am still not used to eating Christmas turkey with my family when it is 32 degrees outside. But if there is one thing that I really do miss about British Christmas, it was my, my British family tradition would go and see a show uh, over the Christmas uh, period. Uh, one year we had a really special treat. We saw the musical in London, Les Miserables. You, are, you might be familiar with it. It's the adaptation of Victor Hugo's famous novel. It is my absolute favorite. It's set in the time of the French Revolution. The central character, Jean Valjean, is put in prison for many years having stolen a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And during his time inside in prison, he becomes consumed by bitterness and resentment. Uh, when he is released, he returns back to those who had known him before, only to be rejected by them because of his wretched appearance. But he just happens to bump into the local bishop. Uh, the bishop was a kind, humble man who took uh, Jean Valjean in for the night and gave him a, a delicious home-cooked meal. Now, this bishop, he lived a simple life, but he, he did have a couple of very precious possessions of great sentimental value to him. Uh, heirlooms handed down from his family before, a complete set of silver cutlery and two silver candlesticks. And when the bishop goes to sleep that night, Valjean gives in to his bitter ways. He creeps downstairs and he steals all the silver that he can find and he runs off into the night. In no time at all, uh, the law catches up with him, drags Valjean back in handcuffs to face the bishop for justice. But when the bishop sees Valjean coming towards him with the authorities by his side, he runs to Valjean, he gets down on his knees and says, Valjean, Valjean, I see you have the silver that I gave you, but why did you forget the candlesticks? They're of much greater value. And Valjean is just speechless. He breaks down in tears because he's never known such mercy, such gracious love. Uh, the bishop had the power and the right to throw Valjean into prison for the rest of his life. And instead, he parts with that which was most precious to him, his family silver, so that Valjean can go and be a free man and live an honest life from that point. This ex-convict far below his station, this traitor who had stolen from him, but the bishop chooses to forgive and show him such grace and mercy. It is a powerful and moving story of selfless and costly forgiveness and love. But it's just a story, right? It's a picture of what we often wish our relationships would look like, especially the ones that, that have faltered, that have become strained over the past years. So we come to Philemon this morning, we are assured that such love is not beyond us as God's people. This is not merely a work of fiction, it is quite the opposite. No, Philemon reminds us that if Christ is the Lord that we know, he will dramatically shape the way that we seek to love one another, even when it hurts. Before we get to Paul's letter to Philemon and his main appeal, let's do some background. Come with me to the greeting in verse 1. Read with me. Paul, 
a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So straight away, we're told that this letter is very much from the Apostle Paul and his fellow worker Timothy is, is by his side, but Paul's conditions right now are not great. He, how he describes himself, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So that, that isn't a metaphor. He is literally under house arrest, we suspect, in Rome at this point, just as we read at the end of the book of Acts. And Paul is writing this letter of Philemon to Philemon, uh, to another house some distance away. We've got a map coming up, and we know where Rome is still in Italy, but Paul is writing, we suspect, to the church in Colossae in modern-day Turkey there. We think he's writing to the church in Colossae, which is the church that meets in Philemon's house, because see how he begins his address. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphir, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul first addresses the primary recipient of the letter, Philemon, who he considers his fellow worker. That's who this letter is primarily for. But then he includes a few others. We have Aphir and Archippus. And Archippus gets a mention also in Paul's letter to Colossians, to the church in Colossae. So Colossians 4.17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. And not only that, but Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, it starts by mentioning that Timothy is with him, just like we have here in Philemon. Given that and some other similarities between these two letters, it's very probable that this letter of Philemon is a second shorter letter that Paul sent to the church in Colossae along with the letter that we have of Colossians to the church in Colossae meeting in Philemon's house. They're all listening in as this second shorter letter is read out to them but everybody knows it's a message for the master of the house. It's a message for Philemon himself. So let's meet him. Come to verse 4. Let's meet Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Paul begins with this great word of thanks to God for this brother Philemon, a man whose faith is real. He doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. Uh, So much so, so that Paul knows it, even though it's very likely he's never actually met Philemon in person. But Paul has heard of his love for Christ and his church, what Paul describes as all the saints here. See verse 6? He now prays for Philemon. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Uh, Paul prays that as Philemon perseveres in the sharing of his faith, shown in his great love for his neighbors, for the church meeting in his house, it might bring about every good thing that God has purposed both for Philemon and for all these other brothers and sisters with him. He prays that Philemon will be growing in maturity through that experience, understanding all the more what it means to love in a manner worthy of Christ. Because the appeal that Paul is about to make to him in this letter is really going to push Philemon's boundaries. He's really going to have to dig down deep and love even when it hurts. Philemon's doing quite well though at this point. See verse 7. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul finds such comfort knowing that that this man has been of such great service to the church in his city already. Opening up his home, refreshing them with hospitality, giving them a place to sit under God's word together in safety that they might spur one another on to love and good deeds. And personally, I was just so encouraged. We've just run our smack Christmas exchange for the first time, inviting members to open up their houses over Christmas time for a meal and other members to come and enjoy. And the response was amazing because we had so many more members willing to open up and host dinners than we had members who actually wanted to go and enjoy free food. It was great. Let's keep that up. Let's keep on opening up our homes and sharing in one another's lives that we might be spurring one another on. We need to be doing that as a church, and it's wonderful that we are. Paul has nothing but praise for Philemon, though, here, a man full of genuine faith, shown in his generous hospitality, and with that in mind, he now gets to the heart of the matter, the reason he's writing this appeal to Philemon. Paul's appeal, verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Paul starts with this pretty strong word of exhortation. He tells Philemon, actually, what I'm about to appeal to you for, what I'm about to ask you, I could actually order you to do. But Paul doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to strong arm Philemon into this. See what he says in verse 9? Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. It's like when I ask, I appeal to my son Josiah, will you help hold your sister's hands as we cross the car park together? Now, I could order Josiah to do that. You must hold your sister's hand. But I would rather appeal to him so Josiah would do it willingly because he wants to, because he loves his sisters and he wants to care for them. Well, or Paul doesn't want Philemon to honor this appeal begrudgingly, under pressure, but willingly from his heart. And with that, we're told what, or should I say who, who Paul is appealing for. He is appealing for Onesimus, who we meet in verse 10. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. Now, Paul may well have not met Philemon in person, but he has met another person from his household, this Onesimus, who Paul is incredibly close to, considers him like a, farm, uh, like a son. Paul has become a father to him during his imprisonment in Rome. They've become very close. But it seems Onesimus' relationship with Philemon hadn't been so healthy. Uh, Onesimus literally means, his name means useful one. So see how Paul plays on his name in verse 11. He tells Philemon, verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And and these words, useless and useful, uh, they hint at the kind of relationship that Philemon had with Onesimus before. It's clarified down for us in verse 16 who Onesimus was to Philemon before. He was Philemon's bond servant, which is a polite way of saying he was Philemon's household slave. Paul is appealing to Philemon for the sake of his former household slave, Onesimus. Let's just take a minute to think through then the tricky issue of slavery. 
in Paul's day. Uh, when we think of slavery in the 21st century, we normally think straight back to the 17th and 18th century, the barbaric practice of men and women being captured and forced into hard labor in a place far from home, a forced race-based slavery. Evil, barbaric, even Paul speaks against that practice in the scriptures. For those taking notes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, he rebukes those he describes as enslavers, those who force people into slavery. But the practice of first century slavery in Paul's world was actually a lot broader than that. It's believed that about 80 to 90% of the entire population of Rome were either slaves or former slaves who had won their freedom. You could be born into slavery, but many became slaves through the loss of war or to pay off a great debt. And most of those born into slavery, at least the Roman convention, was that they would be freed by the age of 30. But let's not kid ourselves. Being a slave was not fun. They were still that much more vulnerable to abuse under their masters who did consider them their personal property. And we should be thankful for men like William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, and many others who rightly recognize from the scriptures that all people are created equal in God's image. No one under any circumstances should be considered the property of another. We should be thankful that for the most part in our world today, slavery is outlawed and actively fought against. But having said that, we do need to recognize that Paul's appeal for Onesimus here in his day is not chiefly concerned with Onesimus being freed from his status as a slave. We actually, and many do, but we have to read quite a bit into this appeal to say that that is the certain outcome that Paul is really fighting for here. Paul's concerned, rather, that whether Onesimus remains Philemon's slave, his household servant or not, that their relationship is both restored and dramatically reshaped by the power of the gospel. So what he says here will definitely bear on Onesimus' experience with Philemon, but Paul has no issue sending Onesimus back to Philemon in his capacity still as Philemon's household servant and slave. In fact, he considers it the right thing to do at this point. See verse 12? He says to him, I am sending him back to you. It's clear that Onesimus ran away from Philemon's house and his duties, and we're not told why. Uh, many want to speculate Philemon was this horrible taskmaster, and Onesimus was just running for cover. But that doesn't really tally with what Paul has told us already. He's had nothing but praise for Philemon, this man full of faith, full of love, in contrast to Onesimus, who Paul has already said he was once useless to you. Perhaps Onesimus was just a lousy servant. But either way, he knows that he must return to Philemon, and that is painful for Paul. See verse 12? He loves Onesimus like his own body. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. See, Paul wants Philemon to know, I'm sending back to you someone who I have come to love dearly as my own body. In fact, Paul might even be hoping that Philemon, in his grace, might even send Onesimus back to him in return. See verse 13? I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But Paul's not going to presume 
on Philemon's good favor. Verse 14, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul's still concerned Philemon needs to act willingly out of love in this situation, not be compelled to do something against his will. And Paul thinks, actually, there's a very good purpose behind why Onesimus ran away in the first place. See verse 16? For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. You see, the Onesimus that Paul is appealing for is no longer the Onesimus that Philemon knew years before. His useless household servant. Paul now describes him as Philemon's beloved brother. Uh, during his time away, Onesimus has experienced a complete change in identity. God had graciously worked under Paul's ministry to open Onesimus' blind spiritual eyes, helping him to see that, that just like all of us, he was a rebel. Not just before his master in Philemon, but far more seriously, like us, before our Creator and God. Here was a man lost without God, without hope in the world. Here was a man in need of a, uh, of a saviour. What we just celebrated this past week, God's Christ, Saviour King, born into the world to save us who had rebelled against him, who are God's enemies. A king who, who grew up and lived the life that all of us have failed to live before God in our sin and then in unfathomable love died for us, his enemies. Died to pay the punishment for our sin so that by his blood we as God's enemies might be reconciled back to our heavenly father in every way. Onesimus has experienced that great salvation as he put his trust in Jesus at just like Philemon, a debtor to mercy alone. And so Paul says to Philemon, end of verse 15, he says, you can now have Onesimus back forever. Because now this Onesimus shares with you, Philemon, in the eternal hope you have in Christ. He with you is a co-heir of God's eternal inheritance, won by nothing but the blood of Jesus. So verse 16, Paul wants him to receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. But Paul says to him, as Onesimus walks through your front door, he is no longer merely the delinquent servant who went AWOL for years, Paul says to Philemon, this is my beloved brother, which means he's your beloved brother in the flesh. This is a brotherhood that makes a real difference to our relationships in the here and now, but a brotherhood that is based on, end of verse 16, the Lord, in the Lord. This intimate bond that's now come about between Onesimus and Philemon is because of their shared faith in Christ. It's not about bloodlines. It's not about personal preferences. It's not about who we want to like and who we prefer to ignore. This is a family bond that God himself has established between all those welcomed back into his household as sinners saved at the cost of his one and only son. As sinners called to love one another 
as God has loved us. And now that Paul has made it crystal clear who Onesimus now is to Philemon, he makes this direct appeal. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. The word partner there is more literally fellow, your fellow believer. Paul tells Philemon, if you consider me your equal in Christ, then don't you go and treat Onesimus any differently. You receive him as you would receive me. Welcome him into the church in your house. Serve him like you are serving all the other brothers and sisters. Seek his interests as you would my own. Now that is a very bold request from Paul, given who Onesimus was and who Philemon is. We can't really appreciate the shock of it. Firstly, it breaks the most foundational social convention in Paul's day. He is really upsetting the status quo here. In the, in the Roman world, the pecking order is what mattered most. Uh, your status in society depended on who you were and who you were known by. So masters did not befriend their servants, their slaves, those considered well below them in status. No, masters were considered worthy of respect. Slaves, not so much. So society treated them very differently. And we still see this kind of unjust partial treatment today in our own city. You know, some being shown special treatment and others being pushed to the side as unimportant. I'll give you one tame example that happened to me and Melissa just this past week. We, we were going to the new GSC Orem Cinema uh, at the gardens. It's supposed to be the super special movie experience far, far above gold class. And I can tell you, it's pretty nice. It is pretty nice. You're told to arrive at least half an hour before the movie starts so that you can enjoy the gourmet snacks that they've prepared for you in the private restaurant before you're ushered in to the movie theater. So Melissa and I, of course, hearing that, we arrived very early before the film. Our personal waiter for the night, he, he approached me and said, good evening, sir. Can I, can I take you to your table? He didn't look at Melissa once. He didn't speak to Melissa once as he greeted us. We got to the table, and of course they're trying to be really fancy, so it was a digital menu on an iPad. They only had one of them. So the waiter came and stood by me and passed the menu to me. What would you like me to get you, sir? Again, he didn't look at Melissa once. He didn't even offer her the menu. It was quite awkward. I had to sort of share the menu between us and ask, so what do you want, and then pass the message back. For the whole night, I got all the attention and the respect and my wife got none. Why? Because I'm the white guy in a shirt. And sadly, that meant I was afforded more respect than my Malaysian wife, despite the fact that it's only because of my hard-working Malaysian wife that we can even afford to have such a nice night out like that. <laughs> it is ugly, but we see it all the time in our own society some being favoured over others because of their ethnic background, their job, their title, their perceived status in society. And that was the Roman world in Paul's day. In the light of the gospel, he rightly turns this corrupt social convention on its head. Philemon, the housemaster, was to welcome Onesimus, his wayward slave, back as a beloved brother. Because in Christ, that's exactly what they were. That's the only status that truly mattered. Equal, sinners, made sons of God 
inheritors of his eternal kingdom through nothing but his grace by the blood of his son shed for them. So now Philemon was to love Onesimus as his fellow brother for whom Christ died. What about us? You know, sadly, we as a church are not immune from making unhelpful distinctions between one another. It is the way of our world, and if we are not allowing the gospel to shape our attitudes to one another, we will be no different. There is a reason why at SMAC we try to make sure we don't use titles on our name tags. It's, it's not Reverend Tim or Captain Jake. Because the only status... Sorry, Jake. You're a captain, right? You are a captain. <laughs> because the only status, the only status that matters in this room for us as a fellowship together is our status in Christ, is our equality in Christ. As sinners saved by nothing but the blood of Christ. And so we are to treat each other with equal love and equal service regardless of who we are or what we do or what we wear. We've got to guard against becoming cliquish, preferring some, avoiding others. After the service, will we look out for the newcomer? Will we deliberately go and seek to encourage the brother or sister that we do find a bit awkward? Or will we just head to our usual group of friends? where it's comfortable to chill out? Will we prize the fellowship that we share in Christ, the fellowship for which Christ died, over and above the status quo? Jesus said it's easy to love your friends. Even the world does that. But we are to be those who are known for loving our enemies as Christ loved us. How much more should we be seeking to love one another regardless of who we may be? Paul didn't want the status quo to shape Philemon's attitude to Onesimus. He knew the gospel of grace should override it. But Paul also knew that even though this was the case, Onesimus had still wronged Philemon in a serious way. And so Paul now goes about putting right the wrong. See verse 18? If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. See, for Onesimus, as a slave who had nothing to his name, for Onesimus to have made all, his way all the way to Rome over a period of years, away from Philemon, well, it's likely that he had stolen money from him to supply him for the journey. And simply by going AWOL, by running away, another household servant would have been brought in at cost to cover his duties. Philemon could have had Onesimus thrown into prison the minute he walked back through the door. Paul knows this. He knew restitution needed to be made. And so for the sake of brotherly love, Paul himself steps in and says, I will pay. Verse 19, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. He takes the quill from the scribe and he writes this himself. To Philemon, this part of the letter, whatever you've lost as a result of Onesimus running out on you, you charge it to my account, I will pay. Now that is gospel love. Paul's not responsible for this mess. 
He's not the one who sinned or the one who's been sinned against, but he would pay to resolve it because he knows that love covers a multitude of sins. And so in love for Christ and these brothers for whom Christ died, Paul says, you charge it to me. I will pay. Despite the fact that right now he's under house arrest in Rome. And as he reminds Philemon, verse 19, to say nothing of your owing me, even yourself. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Philemon already owed Paul his life because it was through Paul's labors for the gospel for which he was currently suffering that Philemon had become the man of faith that Paul praises here. So verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Paul knows that Philemon is a mature, godly man, that he has a reputation of coming to a brother's aid when he needs it. And so Paul's plea is that Philemon's Christ-born, Christ-driven love is now extended even to Onesimus, his former useless household slave. Even though society would not approve, even though Onesimus had wronged Philemon in the first place, Paul knows that God's love to them in Christ was more than enough reason for them to be reconciled, not merely as a servant to his master, but as brothers for whom Christ died. What about us? Just as we as a church are not immune from the status quo in our society today, we're not immune from personal conflicts within our own fellowship. We are a group of sinners, all of us, saved by God's grace. We are each of us God's work in progress, which means we are going to tread on each other's toes sometimes. We are going to rub each other up the wrong way. And sometimes those personal conflicts and falling out, they can be very very serious. As Paul shows us here, where sin has been committed against a fellow brother or sister, restitution should be made. We should seek to put right the wrongs. And that might not mean financial restitution, but just the willingness to confess, to apologize, to seek amends. And we need to be realistic in these kinds of very painful emotional situations. Deep wounds take time to heal. But whether the conflict is serious or trivial, our desire as a fellowship, as a family in Christ, should ultimately be for reconciliation, where we see brokenness, for peace, where we see discord. Of course, some arguments are necessary. We must contend for the truth of the gospel, even if that does mean, sadly, losing friends in the process, but so often I know our conflicts, my conflicts, can be so trivial. I know how stubborn I can be in the midst of silly disputes. I'm lucky my wife, Melissa, didn't spot this t-shirt in the shops before Christmas. I'm not arguing, I'm just explaining why I'm right. Now we laugh, but sadly I have very good reason to wear that shirt. Just talk to my wife, she'll tell you. So many times I've insisted on showing, explaining why I think I'm right when I should have been compassionate, when I should have overlooked a petty wrong. Destructive conflicts often fueled by misunderstanding, but they grow too big and they drag out too long. 
Maybe right now we are involved in one of these conflicts. We know deep down we're holding a grudge. We know it's poisoning our fellowship with a fellow brother or sister for whom Christ died. Paul tells Philemon, Onesimus may be your slave. He may have wronged you for years, but he's your blood-bought brother. So be reconciled. Because the love that unites you is far greater than the smaller sins that could otherwise divide you. Don't let past grievances hinder you from receiving him as your brother, your fellow gospel worker, with whom you can now serve and be encouraged as you go with him to continue making Christ known together. As the new year approaches, maybe we need to be less concerned with resolving to lose weight or to fix the finances and more concerned as far as it depends on us to be restoring relationships that have faltered for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Isn't it Jesus, what did he say? That this is how the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And that brings us on to Paul's farewell. What has become for us as we read this letter now a bittersweet farewell. Let me read from verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We're given these five others who are currently with Paul, close to him in this situation of his imprisonment, and one name tragically stands out for us, Demas. At this point, Paul delights to call him his fellow gospel worker, but tragically, we know that this partnership did not last. We read at the end of 2 Timothy of how Demas in the end succumbed to a love for the world, a love which is by definition self-centered, self-seeking, insisting on one's own rights and preferences over and against the good of others. And so Demas abandoned Paul when Paul needed him most. What a contrast to Philemon. As Paul appeals to him here to to warmly receive Onesimus, his once useless servant, to prize their fellowship over and above that which divided them. And we trust that Philemon did do that. Not because he was a good man in and of himself, but because he knew the love of Christ that saved us as sinners when we before God were at our worst. Friends, we will not persist in loving one another when it hurts, if we have not first known and appreciated God's awesome, unfathomable love to us in His Son, if we are not rejoicing in that same love each day. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you do not know the love that God has poured out to you by the blood of His one and only Son, the forgiveness of sins He offers, the promise of eternal life with him rather than the judgment we deserve, can I urge you to consider him, to go to those follow-up talks, to repent and believe the good news of Christ who alone can set you free. And for those of us who have done that, who know the greatness of that love in Christ, well, let's heed this appeal to Philemon. Let's pursue godly reconciliation. Let's prize our fellowship in him over and above the disputes that would otherwise divide us. Let's prize Christ. And so prize one another. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, you know our situations, you know our hearts, you know those for whom this message is particularly pertinent and hard and painful this morning. Help us, humble us, help us to appreciate all the more the unfathomable love you have shown us in your Son, that we might be responding quickly in forgiveness and love for the sake of one another. Help us individually to see where we possibly need to be taking on board this appeal to Philemon, where we need to be seeing to relationships that have faltered, reconciling, empower us to do that as we rejoice in the great love that we know by the blood of your Son that has given us the promise of an eternal future with you where divisions, suffering, frustrations, and pain will be no more. We commit ourselves into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.